The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, JV. Thanks for being here. We have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about some very, very interesting topics. Again, things we don't always get a chance to talk about here on the show, but we will tonight. Author Dean Reuter will be here to talk about his book called The Hidden Nazi. It documents the role of an SS general, Hans Kemmler, in the Holocaust and in Germany's secret weapon programs and his suicide at the end of the war. Was that real? What happened uh, with the Americans? Were they involved? Was technology involved? We'll find out all about that with Dean Reuter. He's also going to talk about the differences between the, the issues we're facing today in an unprecedented lockdown of the country versus what uh, our grandparents, in many cases, there were our grandparents, faced during the World War II years. As always, I encourage you to join us on the YouTube channel. If you haven't found it yet, just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. The name of the channel is J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. And we have an opportunity for you there to view many, many back episodes, like 500 or so. Plus, when the show streams live, we have a chat room that is a lot of fun, a lot of great people there. And I welcome all of you to our chat room. And I say hello to everybody who's there now. Good to see you all there, of course. Also, the podcast version of the show is available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. If you find it there, subscribe. If you get to the YouTube channel, which I would encourage you to do, please subscribe. The subscriptions help help us uh, do all the things we're trying to do here. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. Dean Reuter. Dean is an author. He's also served in two federal government agencies, including offices of the Inspector General. He's been a counsel to the Inspector General and Deputy Inspector General responsible for policing the use of federal funds granted and contracted through those agencies. He's written a book. It's called The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Dean, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's an honor to have you here tonight. It's great to be with you, J.B. Thank you so much. So, um, I've always heard the adage, in fact, growing up, my first boss, my first employer out of college used to say it almost every day, may we live in interesting times. And it certainly seems that has never been more true than it is right now as we take a look at the world around us. Oh, there's no doubt about that. These are very interesting times. I myself am sitting in my home in northern Virginia. I haven't been in my office for five weeks. Um working from home, um, kind of getting into a rhythm with that. But, um, and, you know, Northern Virginia is shut down. So is Washington, D.C. I guess, uh, you know, essential elements of the federal government are still working, but the rest of us are going to the grocery store and then going straight home. Yeah, and uh, we are doing that in New York as well. And, you know, we, we're still waiting for the giant hangover that's going to hit when all this starts to return to normal. But, I, you know, there's a lot of complaining on social media. There are a lot of people that are trying to determine how this will uh, affect their lives long term, particularly those who have lost their jobs. And I'm hoping that you can put some perspective on this for us. You've studied our the World War II generation. You've written extensively about it. You know, there were sacrifices made, and there are always sacrifices made during times of, of war, especially all-consuming war like World War II. How does what we're sacrificing right now compare to what those folks had to go through? Well, I don't think it compares at all, uh, honestly. I mean, uh, I might not be typical of most people, but I'm living in a big house with my wife and my son and my dog and my cat. Um, we've got plenty of everything. The grocery stores are running a little short on toilet paper, um, but we have everything we need. Uh, and you know, half the people in the country, I guess, are about to get a $1,200 check or a direct deposit into their bank accounts. Now, having said that, there are people that are miserable. Unemployment has become um, a real problem, and the, the national economy and the worldwide economy are really suffering as a consequence of the shutdown. But this doesn't really compare to the era of history that I studied, World War II, uh, where at the end of that conflict, you, you had 55 or 60 million people dead. Now, we're not at the end of the coronavirus uh, crisis, but uh, it doesn't look like it will be anything near 55 to 60 million people. 
there are some similarities. There are lots of contrasts. Yeah, and of course, if you even extend this to what the uh, majority of Europeans were dealing with during this war, I mean, you know, they were in many cases homeless and uh, refugees and had no support system whatsoever for, for many years, especially as the war was nearing its end. Well, that's right. And even after the war, J.V., I mean, the, the war was cataclysmic for Europe. Well, here on the home front in the United States, I mean, our, our uh, young men uh, had to suffer through the draft. They served overseas. Uh, hundred, a few hundred thousand people lost their lives, over 400,000 people here in this country as soldiers overseas. Uh, but in Europe, it was far worse, uh, not just rationing and blackouts, but constant bombing, uh, regardless of where you were in Germany. You could be on the side of the good guys uh, or the bad guys, regardless of where you were in Europe, I should say. Uh, London uh, experienced the Blitz and the Battle of Britain and terror bombing. This is the first war uh, where you saw uh, uh, militants on both sides uh, targeting citizens. And these were weapons in World War II that were really, really advanced compared to what happened in World War I. So this was uh, torrential bombing, uh, fire bombing um, of citizens. And uh, you know, the numbers of bombing runs, the, the length of the campaigns of bombings were just astounding in Europe, in France, but also within Germany um, and all the Eastern European countries. So in that sense, I mean, there's just no comparison at all. You can, the, the closest thing we have in this country to that sort of example is perhaps 9-11, um, where, you know, the Pentagon uh, ended up being essentially bombed and the World Trade Centers ended up being bombed. But at, during World War II, in Britain, at the height of the war, um, there were maybe 90 missiles a week landing in London and Southampton, and uh, half a city block would just be shattered. And that was happening 90 times a week on an endless loop with no, uh, no end in sight for that sort of thing. And that's just the missiles. That doesn't include the bomber airplanes uh, during the early parts of the war. Yeah, and you, that- were no better, you were no better off as a citizen of Germany uh, later in the war. Yeah, I mean, there were there were entire cities of Germany that were completely leveled um, from Allied bombing, you know, and a lot of that was an effort to try to get the population to turn against Hitler. Um, but you know, tens of thousands of civilians lost their lives. Yeah, and that was that was the nature of the terror bombing by Germany of London. You know, Germany entered this war. Their real goal was to conquer Eastern Europe and expand the German living space, the Lebensraum. Uh, they ended up, uh, when they invaded Poland, making enemies of France and Great Britain um, and ended up fighting a, a war on two fronts. And immediately uh, Hitler saw that he needed to get uh, Great Britain out of the war, and that's what the terror bombing of Great Britain was all about. It was, as you say, um, in the early parts of the war, trying to demoralize the English citizens and get uh, Great Britain to sue for peace so that Hitler could turn his full offensive in the direction of the Russians. We are, let me see here, if I can do some quick math, 50, 75 years uh, from the, almost, almost to the day, and we're pretty close uh, to, to the end of World War II in Europe. Um, what was it, May 12th? I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the date. Of, uh, May 9th. May 9th of 45. So yeah. we are very close to that day. Um, and uh, we are we have lost... A very large uh, portion of our World War II vets, and, and at one point I heard we were losing like 20,000 a day or something like that. Um, so World War II is starting, in a way, to fade from some memories. Um, and one of, the, one of the parts of World War II that should never fade, but sadly seems to be fading a little bit, is the Holocaust. And what happened to um, 6 million uh, European Jews... And uh, many others, too, uh, political prisoners and, uh, in some cases, uh, military prisoners. Um, that's starting to fade from people's memory. How dangerous is that? Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's as sad as it is dangerous, J.V. It's, it's very dangerous because people begin to, it becomes easy then to deny the Holocaust, to, um, from a perhaps most benign perspective, to try and make yourself believe that man can't do this to man, to the fellow man, um, when in fact they can. And that was one of the motivators for writing this book, frankly. My kids are 26 and 24, um, and uh, 
when I was growing up, I'm 59, it, you knew somebody who served in World War II. It That's was right. an uncle or a father or a grandfather. Um, you, you often knew people who survived the Holocaust or family members who, who survived the Holocaust. Now it really is a textbook exercise where um, kids, uh, in my, my kids' generation, uh, 30 years and below, um, they don't know anybody who served in the war. It's just a uh, sort of an abstraction for them. And they have almost no awareness of the Holocaust. Uh, a recent poll, you know, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Holocaust took place January uh, 27th of this year, and the polling numbers for the um, uh, younger generation, the people who didn't know what Auschwitz was or didn't know what the Holocaust was, is just uh, astounding and really scary. I mean, I think it was something like 65% of the people uh, polled below the age of 30 or so had never heard, didn't know what Auschwitz was, and 25% wow. didn't know what the Holocaust was. Wow. That's tragic. That is tragic. And I have to say, I, I uh, have been a history buff since I was a little kid. I spent a lot of time studying and being fascinated by the Civil War. Then I moved on to World War II. And one of the reasons that happened for me is my father uh, was a musician, and he played um, with another gentleman who was a World War II vet. And this gentleman was a sax player. And when he was, he was captured during World War II, and he was held prisoner. And because he was a musician, and because he was a saxophone player, at, for some reason, I don't know the details of it, but the Germans actually cut part of his tongue off. And he came back, he relearned how to play saxophone, he ended up playing in a band with my dad many years later, and I met the man, and that story prompted me to want to know everything I could about what had happened during World War II. And I imagine that did, there were a lot of stories like that that did a lot of that for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's true of our generation. People had um, real stories with real human faces um, yeah. uh, that they could relate to personally. These were people they knew who had suffered greatly. Um, and as I said, now it's an abstraction for, for the younger generations. Um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write a book not just about the war, uh, but about the Holocaust. And the figure we ended up with to, to tell the story, the principal subject of the book, a Nazi German general, uh, Hans Kammler, who we call the Hidden Nazi, the title of the book, uh, it is a story that is so strange. Um, you know, it's all factually documented. We've got all the government documents to prove it all. Um, but if we, if we hadn't come across those documents and I read a book like this, I wouldn't believe it would to be true. I, I had to be involved personally in order to wrap my head around uh, just how astounding this story is. Tell us who Hans Kammler is or was. Tell us who he was. What's his story? Uh, was is the correct phrasing there. He was born in 1901, so he'd be 120 almost now. So uh, he's past tense. Um, born in what is now Poland in 1901. Um, he had an unexceptional childhood, but he came of age during World War I uh, as a German citizen. And um, he became a man as the war ended. He never served in the war, uh, but he joined the anti-communist after the war. And if if your listeners are familiar with the way World War I ended from the German side, uh, the Germans really expected to win, and the loss was very sudden, very unexpected, and humiliating for the German people. Uh, they had never even fought a battle on German territory, much less lost a battle on German territory. They were supposed to win, and all of a sudden they've lost. And we think that helped, me and my, my co-authors and, and co-researchers believe that helped form Kammler. He became embittered, uh, like a lot of German citizens of that era, uh, and he became an ardent anti-communist. Um, he went on to study architecture. That was his, his craft uh, by training. He was an architect and an engineer. Um, he got a degree, two degrees in architecture, including an advanced degree. Uh, he got married. He was a family man. Um, he was married by the age of 29, so in 1930 he's getting married. But by 1933, uh, just before Hitler becomes chancellor, Hans Kammler joins the Nazi party. Uh, and uh, the same year, he joins the SS before Hitler becomes president of Germany. Uh, so he, 
Hans Kammler, that is, the hidden Nazi, he's an ardent Nazi. He's a true believer. He is not a follower, a mere follower. He's within the SS. And uh, your listeners probably know this, and you do too, JV, probably, that uh, you know, to be a German soldier or a sailor, sailor was one thing. To be a Nazi was a different level of uh, barbarity. And within the Nazis, to be in the SS was the elite, sort of central, hardened, extremely ideological and cruel core. And it was within that core, the SS, that Hansler, Hans Kammler rose uh, to the highest levels. In the final year of the war, he became an Obergruppenführer, which is the highest commissioned rank in the SS. Nobody's ever heard of this guy, unbelievably. But he became the highest rank commission officer in the SS. There was only one guy to receive that promotion in the final year of the war, and it was Hans Kammler. Uh, so that's who he was. Um, um, what he accomplished is a whole other story, um, both in the early parts of the war and the latter parts of the war. And I'd be happy to go into that. Uh, yeah, we've got to go to break here in just a couple minutes, so I don't want to uh, get into something that's going to require a lengthy answer. So let me ask this about him. Why is this figure, who um, seems to have been in the upper echelon of the Nazi command, why has he remained such uh, a mysterious figure and, and relatively unknown? Well, that's a great question, and the answer to that is pretty straightforward. It's because at the end of the war, he committed suicide. So he escapes justice, and historians never went looking for him. But the reports of his suicide were made by his driver, um, and, but he never produced the dog tags of the general or the sidearm or the papers, and that was the standard required practice at the time. You would take those three things, dog tags, uh, sidearm, and papers, to the Red Cross station or the nearest battle station. No body was ever produced and a post-war search for the grave turned up empty. Uh, and this guy had the rank equivalent to George Patton. So losing his body in the field of battle was just unthinkable. And as we prove in The Hidden Nazi, his suicide was faked. Um, so that's why nobody's ever heard about him. Was he ever a battlefield commander, or was he always an administrative uh, officer? That's another good question, because very, very few people managed to accomplish both. But Hans Kammler uh, was... It's a terrible term to apply to him because he was so despicable, but in that sense, he was a Renaissance man. Um, he was a battlefield commander at the end of the war when it came to Germany's secret weapons, including in particular the V-1 and the V-2 rockets, which we can talk about in detail. Dean Reuter is our guest tonight. We're talking about his book, The Hidden Nazi. Um, the uh, book is The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, and we haven't gotten to the part where America gets involved yet, Dean, but tell us a little bit more about the supposed suicide of uh, the uh, hidden Nazi, or of course, uh, the gentleman we're talking about, Obergruppenfuhrer Hans Kammler. Do we, did, was there a report as to how he committed suicide, supposedly? Yeah, his, so as the war's ending, if your listeners know, the war ended sort of in Bavaria, southern Germany, and Czechoslovakia. Hans Kammler, according to his driver, Kurt Pruk, finds himself in Prague, Czechoslovakia, uh, being surrounded by uh, Russians coming from one side, the Americans coming from the other. He manages to get outside the city, driving south, um, and then according to his driver, they stop for a roadside meeting with another general. Hans Kammler walks off into the woods and uh, doesn't return. His driver goes and finds him dead by cyanide poisoning. Uh, that goes against everything we found to be true about the way Hans Kammler lived his life, uh, the energy, the, the survival, um, you know, his drive. He's just not the kind of person to commit suicide, and uh, indeed we found that wasn't the case. And I, I should add, you know, as we did our research when we're putting this book together, we reached out to the Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations and to those, of course, are the U.S. Nazi hunters, to the Wiesenthal Center, and even the Mossad. And it, we confirmed that none of them ever hunted for Kammler. And to paraphrase their response, what they told us was we had limited resources. We had to pursue living war criminals. Kammler was dead, uh, so we didn't pursue him. So uh, not only have the historians failed to pursue him, the, uh, the key Nazi hunters around the world have failed to pursue him. Justice has failed to pursue him. So and I really believe, and we can get into Kammler's role in the war, in the Holocaust, um, 
if if he had been known to have survived the war in, in the years after the war, he would have been more sought after than uh, Joseph Mengele, he, the angel of death. He would have been higher on the lists than Klaus Barbie, even higher than and more barbaric than Adolf Eichmann, the head of the Gestapo. Uh, he was that bad a human being, uh, but everybody believed his suicide, so he never got on those lists. Well, let me ask a, a, a kind of an environmental question. At that point, the war is about to end. Germany is in ruins. There are refugees everywhere. How difficult and or common was it for uh, high-level Nazis, or maybe even not even high-level, just Nazi officers in general, uh, to take this type of action where they may fake their own death or f- fake their own suicide and escape somewhere? I mean, we, we, you know, we know, we kind of have an idea of where the upper echelon went and, and what their disposition was. But take, take a step lower than that. Was this something that was easily accomplished? It wasn't hard, believe it or not. For you know, 10, 10 to 12 months before the war ends, pretty much everybody knew Germany was going to lose this war. Right. And the, the most senior Nazi officers, those with means, those with something to trade, uh, those with something of value began to make their own exit strategies. Uh, they got they got papers, uh, they got fake uniforms, uh, and they, they made arrangements to get themselves to safety. A lot of folks, believe it or not, were arrested. Key Nazis were arrested, put in detention camps, and sometimes just walked away or otherwise managed to escape. We did have Joseph Mengele in custody after the war. And we just let him walk away. Uh, and that happened. I was shocked to find uh, that there were so many wanted Nazi war criminals uh, that we had in custody that just managed to slip through our fingers um, after we had them in custody. It's remarkable. So what was Kamler's role in the Holocaust? Where, where, did, where does he enter that picture? Uh, From the very, very beginning, J.V., I mean, uh, the the Holocaust was sort of conceived by Adolf Hitler in uh, the early 1920s when he's in jail writing Mein Kampf. He's envisioning the annihilation of the Jewish race. Uh, The war really doesn't start until 1939, but uh, six years before that, 1933 and 1934, Kamler's writing a treatise, which basically is the uh, realization, the detailed blueprint, I should say, for Hitler's vision of expanding Germany into Eastern Europe. Um, he, he lays out these detailed blueprints, blue uh, Kammler does, uh, to take over these countries and enslave the population, uh, use that enslaved population to build German villas and cities and towns not just rule over the local population, but enslave them and repopulate that entire countryside, um, the Baltic countries, Poland, the Ukraine, Crimea, repopulate that entire countryside with ethnic Germans, and in the process, kill the inhabitants. Uh, And this, by by Kamler's own uh, reckoning, would result in the deaths of 20 to 30 million uh, Jews. And this was 1933, 1934, long before the war ever began. Uh, so he was, he was, his thinking was that corrupt uh, and that depraved um, even before the Holocaust began. Now, most people um, think the Holocaust proper started in January 1942 at the Wannsee Conference. That is a conference you probably heard about where German leaders got together and, uh, according to history, uh, came up with the final solution. Right. But... What we have is a document um, signed by Hans Kammler, September 27, 1941, so four weeks before the Wannsee Conference. Kammler is identifying Auschwitz as the key camp, the key slave labor camp and the key killing camp. Um, And we've got the signed order with Hans Kammler's name on it. Um, Four days after that, he sets up, stands up an architectural office at, at Auschwitz, and names its director, Karl Bischoff, who's a Hans Kammler uh, deputy. And Kammler decides to double the size of Auschwitz, then redouble it, and then double it yet again. So wow. that it ends up being a camp that can hold uh, 250,000 people. And uh, he goes on from there um, to build out the killing camp and the slave labor camp. And he did this uh, not just at Auschwitz. He reproduced his work 
elsewhere. And it's one very, um, I think, distressing but colorful tidbit of information at this point um, were the references to Kamler by his SS colleagues. They described him as a deplorable human being, uh, even within the ranks of the Nazi regime. They, they used language like rare obstinacy, brutality, disdain, the worst person I've ever known. And these were words coming from SS officers who were themselves murderous men within a ruthless regime uh, at war, accustomed to dealing with massive death, and they thought that Hans Kammler was the real bad guy. So uh, not only did he identify Auschwitz as the killing camp, he then designed the, the standard concentration camp barracks. The architectural director that I just mentioned, Bischoff, wanted to have brick barracks for inmates. Kamler said, no, we're going to have wooden barracks. They're cheaper. And this is where Kamler really made his, his name and came to prominence. Uh, he was, made himself famous for using standardized materials and processes, doing everything as cheaply and efficiently as possible. So we have these architectural drawings with Kamler's signature at the bottom uh, of a concentration camp barracks. And in the margin, 550 um, inmates are supposed to be housed in one of these uh, concentration camps barracks. And, and Kamler slices through the number 550 and writes in 774. Um, so an already overcrowded barracks, Kamler uh, puts an extra 30% of people in there, specifically with the idea that it's going to cause disease to run rampant and help kill these people. Um, so... Uh, and then from there, uh, after designing the concentration camp barracks, um, he turned to installing the gas chambers and the ovens at these same camps, not just at Auschwitz, but at camps throughout Europe. And he wasn't doing this, J.V., from Berlin. Uh, he wasn't a bureaucrat, you know, uh, picking up the phone and, and making distant orders. He was, he was at Auschwitz weekly, sometimes daily. Uh, he had this nickname during this period, uh, he was called Stabvok, which means dust cloud, and that describes his sort of frantic movement from one of these camps to the next to the next, trying to get all the implements of death uh, installed. And this is also a period where um, we found Kammler, we toured the east, you know, the German, the German army is has conquered Poland, but now they're going through Russia, mm-hmm. and behind the German army... Uh, I imagine you've heard of the Einsatzgruppen. The oh, absolutely. Squads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So Hans Kammler made a tour of these countries as the Einsatzgruppen was proceeding through, and he actually studied the most efficient ways to kill people. Uh, there were uh, individual shootings of people, mass shootings, mass hangings. They had these box trucks called killing trucks. Um, the equivalent of what we'd have as a box truck today, where they would herd people into these box trucks, um, run the uh, uh, exhaust fumes into the box truck, and kill people that way. Uh, they had some other mobile gassing units. Kammler gathered all this information, brought it back to Auschwitz, decided that Zyklon B was the most efficient way to kill people, um, and then decided to use that at Auschwitz and at the other killing camps. Um, and and he um, he also configured the camps, especially Auschwitz. Auschwitz was going to be a slave labor camp and a killing camp. So it's really more than just one camp. It had dual purposes. And as it was originally designed, there was a railroad track spur that came in and would deliver people to the slave labor camp. The people that were going to the killing camp, that was about a mile and a half away. And Kamler quickly realized, no, we need to flip those two camps. We need to have the slave labor camp a mile and a half away because those people are fit enough to walk the mile and a half. The people we're going to gas immediately are the women, the children, the elderly, the infirm. So he made, made clear that the killing camp had to be right at the end of the railroad spur to make it more efficient. And then he, had, he put the gas chamber in the basement of a building uh, with an elevator and the crematoria immediately above. And what you begin to see is this maniacal sense of efficiency applied uh, to the mass murder of an entire race. And it, it really is astounding. 
industrialized killing. It's it's unbelievable, and it seems to have have done been done without a hint of hu- uh, humanity. And I know that sounds a little obvious, but how humans can lose their humanity completely is a question that's so difficult to answer. Well, and there's one. There's I'm glad you mentioned that because there's one very interesting. Uh, anecdote about Hans Kammler. I mentioned he got married at the age of 29. He went on to have five children. Two of his daughters died very young. Uh, one of them uh, was in the, as an infant, a newborn, in the care of a nurse with many other children, uh, and the nurse left a bottle of chloroform open near the children, and the Kammler baby was actually gassed. And huh. despite, despite that sort of tragedy, I never saw an ounce of humanity or empathy or sympathy in Kamler for the men and the women and the children that were sent into the gas chambers that, that he installed. I, I hear these stories, and I've heard a lot of these stories, and every one of them is equally disturbing and equally difficult to digest. Uh, as this man uh, went through this with such uh, callous efficiency. He also became involved in um, Nazi in Germany's uh, high adva- highly advanced weapons programs. Where did that fit into this? Well, before can I can I t- just briefly touch on slave labor? Oh, sure, yeah, please do. That, yes, of course. I, I want to make sure your 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 listeners are are fully aware of the extent of his depravity because um, there was this um, uneasy tension in Germany. Uh, the folks that were really 100% behind the Holocaust wanted to kill all the Jews right away. The people that were most intent on winning the war saw some value in enslaving the most healthy Jews and using them um, for the, the war effort. Uh, and Hans Kammler ended up sort of straddling this um, tension and managing this tension. And what he ended up with were the killing camps alongside slave labor camps, which were fed into German industry um, and pr- pr- actually produced uh, a stream of revenue for the SS. Uh, Kammler envisioned the SS becoming a, a stand-up, uh, independent, sovereign entity within Nazi Germany. And, and he did that by the SS is in control of these slave labor camps, um, and they were renting out the slaves, not just for SS construction projects that he headed, but also to German industry, to many companies, your, your listeners would know the names of today, and to the German government. So he was turning a nice profit um, with this uh, slave labor trade. Um, and that's how he managed to sort of straddle this uh, line. And, but it was clear he was able to enslave the population only with a view towards ultimately killing them all. Um, so... Um, he built slave labor camps that were designed to work people to death. That was the goal. And for Kamler, uh, the death of a slave was a victory. It wasn't a tragedy. Uh, it, it was a loss of production, but he ultimately saw that as a victory. And we found slave labor camps. Uh, you know, there were some politician made a comment recently, I guess about a year and a half ago, about. Uh, some detention uh, camps on our south southern borders being like concentration camps, um, an ill-advised comment. But hmm. the, the worst slave labor camp we found killed 80% of the prisoners in three months. Uh, so after three months, you had an 80% chance of being killed. Uh, now, one, one of these camps was, and there were thousands of these, but one camp was described as comparatively good and clean. And I calculated that it had a death rate of about 27%. So after a year, you had a 27% chance of being killed in a comparatively good and clean slave labor camp. So these were not nice places. These were horrid, horrid places to to try to exist. Um, Having said that, they were better than being marched into the gas chambers, of course. And I think that, um, I mean, I've seen a lot of Holocaust-related movies, but I think Schindler's List does a good job of... of kind of illustrating how those how the uh, SS would basically rent you uh, labor at so much a day uh, to use in your factory. I don't know if you've got a better example of that, but I do remember that being discussed in Schindler's list. No, that's exactly the way this worked. And and, and so so Hans Kammler and the SS rented the slaves. They used them for their own construction projects. They rented them to the German government as well, and they also rented them to German industry. Um, and that money came back to the SS, 
uh, and their vision was to have an, an independent SS. A truly, I mean, if you if there's anything more fearful than a than an independent Nazi Germany, it's an independent SS within it. And the and one of the things that's always been remarkable about discussions of World War II was the technology that the Germans employed in, in warfare. And they seem to have an edge on virtually every angle. Clearly, they didn't get the atomic bomb first, thankfully. However, um, in almost every other facet, they seem to have an edge. Uh, was was Kamler involved in German high-tech weaponry? He was. He was. Uh, you know, he distinguished himself so well as, as a master of efficiency and killing in the Holocaust that that he rose quickly within the ranks. And, you know, he also had this sort of golden ticket because he had joined the Nazi Party and the SS very early. Uh, he was seen as ardent within their own ranks. So um, he ends up, by the end of the war, in charge of all of Germany's secret weapons. This includes uh, the Messerschmitt jet, rock, uh, jet airplanes um, that were unique, uh, but it also includes anti-tank weapons and shaped charges. It includes some veins of nuclear weapons research that we found that nobody else has talked about. But um, the thing we focus on a lot in the hidden Nazi are German rockets. Um, these were the, the vengeance weapons. Your listeners have probably heard about them, the V-1 and the V-2 rocket. Um, so I can set the stage to talk about those because you know, this is a point, um, the Versailles Treaty, uh, Germany was forbidden from rearming, but from the 1930s, early 1930s on, they started working on rockets. Um, there, there was no ban um, in, in the Ver- Treaty of Versailles from Germany developing a rocket program, which they did between the wars. Um, but as the war is sort of winding down, uh, everybody seems to know that Germany is going to lose the war. Germany forces, German forces were spread far too thin. Um, and, but, but the Germans clung to this idea that there was going to be a super weapon, a wonder weapon, um, and most scholars and historians think that those references uh, are references to Germany's rockets. You know, Gar- Garbels was talking about them. Hitler was dropping hints about them in the speeches. Um, and that's, uh, that's what they were, these German rockets referred to as vengeance weapons. And they were supposed, they were called vengeance weapons because they were going to be Germany's answer to the bombing of German cities, cities by, the, uh, by the Allies. Um, so the, the two rockets I'll discuss very quickly. The V-1 was the German buzz bomb. Um, many people have heard about that. It was, an, it was a technological advance, but it was not extraordinary. We had nothing like it, um, but um, it flew uh, about 400 miles an hour, powered by a diesel engine. Uh, it was a missile, so it was pilotless, but it had wings like an airplane. It sort of looked like a glider, um, and it could go about 150 miles um, and that became unbelievably important after Germany lost air superiority. They couldn't fly bombers and fighter aircraft over Great Britain anymore, but as long as they were within 100 miles of London, they could launch missiles into London. And these V-1s were very cheap to make and very effective. They were basically plywood covered by sheet metal. And the um, Germans launched thousands of these into London. Um, the second rocket... The V-2, um, as I say in the book, if the V-1 was the Volkswagen Beetle of the war, the V-2 was the exotic uh, racing machine. It was fast. The V-2 was fast, devastating, but really expensive and somewhat temperamental. It was a supersonic liquid-fueled rocket, uh, JV. It was so far ahead of its time, it really didn't seem to belong on a World War II battlefield. Um, our scientists, the Western Allies scientists, including the Americans, didn't think a rocket, a liquid-fueled rocket could be built. They thought it was not possible. They thought it was physically impossible. And, and in the end, it required the creation of thousands of new parts that all had to be perfectly coordinated. And we talk about this at some length uh, in the book, The Hidden Nazi. Uh, hundreds of pieces of technology that didn't exist before the war, and we're talking about uh, fuel injection and steering rudders and gyroscopes and uh, conquering spin and vibration and electronic fields. Um, you know, when I started looking at this rocket, I thought, okay, the V-2 is a big deal. It's a big rocket. It's probably as tall as a man or 10 feet tall. Uh, this was a 14-ton missile that's 46 feet high. So, oh, wow. Yeah, almost five stories high. It traveled... Um, 
if, you, if they shot it straight up in the air, it went to a height of 128 miles above the Earth. Um, when they shot it at a target like London, it, it would travel as high as 55 miles and 3,600 miles an hour. So it would come down on its target uh, without warning. There were no defenses to this missile once it was launched. And they had mobile launching trucks. So they could set up a mobile launching truck somewhere in Western Europe, fire off two or three of these rockets, move the truck, and be gone before the Allies even knew where the rockets had come from. Um, And to give you some perspective, these were going uh, 55 miles in the air. A modern aircraft goes about six miles uh, at altitude and um, not 55 miles, yeah. and, about six, and about 600 miles an hour. These were going 3,600 miles an hour. And when they hit, they would dislodge about 6 million pounds of shrapnel and debris. And that's, that's the equivalent of about 2,000 2, automobiles just whirling through the air, shrapnel and, and debris. And they were firing thousands of these at London. They weren't, they weren't terrifically accurate, but... If you're launching at a city like Southampton or London, a large target like that, and you don't care whether you hit downtown or the east side right. or, or whatever, you know, you just throw as much of this as you can at the enemy, and that's what they did. Um, but these rockets were so valuable that uh, as the war's ending and everybody knew Germany was going to lose the war, everybody knew there'd be this mad scramble for this technology. Uh, the Allies wanted it, the Western Allies wanted it, the Soviets wanted it, uh, the United States wanted it. And Hans Kammler, because he was master of these rockets, he controlled the rocket team. And I thought, again, okay, there's a rocket team of maybe five or, five or ten guys who are designing these rockets. These are the guys who are putting these together. But it was hundreds of rocket team members um, working uh, from before the war in, in, on the Baltic coast, of Germany, as far north in Germany as you can get, at a place called Pienamunda, a special purpose-built uh, facility for rocket uh, launching and experimentation. They were launching these rockets into the Baltic Sea. Um, and as we show in The Hidden Nazi, Hans Kammler deliberately, deliberately delivered that rocket team to the United States. Uh, most people think we sort of just stumbled upon them, but there's this tightly sequenced series of events that show, that prove that he... He turned them over to us in order to try and save his life and rehabilitate himself. So the, the, the title of the book is The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Was there a deal? Do we have evidence that this was a coordinated deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we prove it in the book. Um, so I'll, I'll walk you through. There's maybe six or seven steps. This is what I call this tightly sequenced series of events over a series of months. So... Um, <laughs> The, the, the V-2 starts being fired into London in October of 1944, so about eight months before the war ends. Uh, the next um, month, the Americans sign a contract with General Electric so that General Electric will build a V-2-type rocket. Um, so we get, we get our hands on the first ones that are landing in London. By November, we sign a contract with General Electric to build one. By December, just a month later, Kamler's emissaries are meeting in Lisbon, Portugal, with representatives of the United States government and General Electric. Uh, General Electric just got the contract a month later. They're meeting with Kamler's people in Lisbon on neutral territory. Oh, wow. And, and the war is still raging. This is December of 1944. The Battle of the Bulge is happening, um, and Kamler's negotiating with the Americans. Now, the rocket team is still on the north shore of Germany. Um, and the Soviets are approaching. So in January of 1945, one month later, Kammler signs an order to move the rocket team to central Germany to a purpose-built underground factory, the largest underground factory ever built, built by Kammler's slaves. Uh, he moves the rocket team down there in January. February of 1945, the Yalta Conference, if you know about that, that's when uh, the Allies got together and said, uh, described the post-war zones of occupation, right. who's going to occupy what. And it turns out uh, the place to which Kammler had just moved the rocket scientist is going to be in the Russian zone of occupation. So he's been thwarted. So six weeks after that, he signs another order and moves them to Bavaria. Now, he could have moved them to many, many other places, but where he ends up moving them is within about a week's march of the advancing U.S. Army. 
And that's the sequence of events that, that uh, we call the Kamler deal and cements the Kamler deal. Now, it doesn't make sense. The whole theory sort of falls apart when you think, well, Kamler went to Prague then and killed himself. Why would he do that if he'd made this deal with the Americans? Um, but, of course, it makes perfect sense when we discovered the government documents that show he didn't die at the end of the war. He actually surrendered to the U.S. Army. Those documents that you're referring to, are they American documents? They're a mix of American documents um, and some German documents, um, but mostly American documents. Um, and it took us forever to come out with these documents. We had to fight tooth and nail with the government. Uh, you know, I, had, I mentioned two co-authors and researchers. Uh, these guys are making visits to archives in Europe, here in the United States. We're making Freedom of Information Act requests, um, uh, you know, finding documents at small libraries, small collections, uh, the Auschwitz, uh, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, but also military bases across the country. These documents are everywhere and, and anywhere and sometimes nowhere. Um, very hard to get. But they're U.S. government documents that show we had Hans Kammler in custody long, long after his reported suicide. And we, we know the story, or at least more of the story, of Werner von Braun and the fact that he actually rose to become the head of NASA here in the United States. Uh, that in itself was, in many ways, a deal with the devil. Um, how far did Kamler get in, whether it was U.S. Uh, uh, in, in military or um, in, in NASA or other forms of officially sanctioned U.S. government projects? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we have, by the way, we have a whole chapter in the book about Werner von Braun, who was the lead rocket scientist. He was the rocket genius, and if you could only get one guy after the war, he would be the guy you'd want. Did he answer to Kamler? He did. He did. He did. He worked for Hans Kammler. It was He was one of the rocket scientists that Hans Kammler delivered to the United States. And it's only because we got that rocket team that we got to the moon first and that we got our ICBM and, I think, helped win the Cold War. You know, there's an old Bob Hope joke that we got to the uh, moon because our Nazi scientists were better than the Russians' Nazi scientists. And there's a lot of truth in that, that sort of humor. <laughs> Um, but it was Hans Kammler that gave us Werner von Braun. And, you know, Werner von Braun, as you say, became an American hero. Uh, but our chapter in the book uh, presents a lot of new evidence uh, that indicates that von Braun knew a lot more about the Holocaust and knew a lot more about the use of slave labor and endorsed it, and even on occasion personally went and recruited a couple of slaves to work on his rocket projects. And for years after the war, he was withholding documents from the Americans. So we've got a whole chapter in there that's an indictment of Von Braun and presents a lot of information that, 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 that shows that he's not quite the American hero everybody thinks he is. Why did there seem to be a period of maybe indifference to this information? And now it seems the Von Braun story is being told and retold. Your uh, your book talks about the Kamler story, but people are starting to now second guess or maybe have what I would consider to be some remorse for embracing these war criminals. Yeah, well, I think if you understand, and, and I'm clear in this book to, to be careful not to second-guess the decisions that were made right at the end of the war. Yeah. Because as the war is ending, everybody knows that Russia is going to be the existential threat. They were, and I mean an existential threat, they, they, their vision of, of the world was incompatible with the United States and American freedom. They wanted to annihilate us. And it was in that context that we started recruiting Nazis not just to build rockets, not just to build, uh, help build our nuclear weapons and perfect all our science and technology, uh, everything from weapons to nylon to synthetic fuels and synthetic rubber. Um, uh, but we recruited Nazis as well as intelligence assets on the continent, and we used them for years, RV, RJV. Um, and uh, we were unapologetic about it. Now, as time passes, the people who are responsible for making those decisions, uh, they pass away. Um, the the sort of uh, sense of urgency of the moment, uh, you know, you can't recreate that today. You can't necessarily put yourself into the shoes of those people and realize right. they were they had a mortal fear uh, of the Soviet Union and felt like the Soviet Union was going to sweep through Europe, uh, take over Great Britain, and then leapfrog to the United States. 
Um, so uh, in that context, it's very difficult to second-guess these sorts of deals. Now, uh, with the passage of time, um, it's, it's, it's now possible to examine them in sort of a cold, um, dispassionate way. The um, story continues, and uh, Kumler was kept where? Did, was he in a prison? Was he in an office? Was he in, uh, in a witness protection program? How did that work? Yeah, so according to the German courts, he committed suicide in May of 1945. That was adjudicated by the German court. Um, we actually uh, had him from that point forward uh, until March of 1946. And our documents show that he was interrogated in central Australia, Austria rather, sorry, um, uh, central Austria about missing money, um, missing uh, German funds, uh, that he was moved to central Germany to that one rocket science uh, uh, center I mentioned, and we think he was there being interrogated about scientists that still might be in that area that we were trying to locate before the Soviets took that zone of occupation over. And then we have documents that suggest, I wouldn't say prove, but that suggest strongly that he was at Nuremberg on the eve of the Nuremberg trials. Mm. Uh, probably giving some testimony to support the prosecution of some of his fellow Nazis. Um, and uh, that would have been November of 1945 uh, that the Nuremberg trials began. And then you know, we had him through February of 1946, so now fully 10 months after the war. And then there's a, a and in the file, there's a, an extradition request from Great Britain where they want us to turn Kamler over. You asked me a question I haven't yet answered about whether or not he had a battlefield command. Uh, when, when the V-2s were being launched, Kamler was actually in the field of battle in charge of the launch troops at times. So he did have a battlefield command in that sense. And for that reason, at least in part, Great Britain wanted Hans Kamler, and they made extradition requests in February 1946, that's in the file, and there's a note saying, we have no objection to the extradition of Hans Kammler. And then, poof, the paper trail just evaporates. It's as if the guy never existed. And there's no indication, there's no concrete indication that he went to Great Britain or that he went to South America with our help or that he stayed in Europe or that we brought him to the United States. And from that point forward, we lay out three different scenarios, and we tell the reader what we think is what most likely became of him after that. Can you tell us what the status was of the Nazi nuclear program at the end of the war? Were they close to having the bomb? Well, you know, that's a great question. And, and we, don't, we don't suggest that they were close. Uh, we suggest they were closer than conventional history reports. And, you know, I make that case. Um, I think what, I, what I'm most comfortable saying is that, you know, the Americans came to this conclusion that Germany never got close to a nuclear weapon. And what, what we do is examine the way that the United States came to that conclusion and just completely destroy that theory. Um, it, it's, and it's not that complicated. There were basically uh, two threads of evidence that the United States relied on to conclude the Nazis had not advanced very far in nuclear research. The first were these... Um, secretly recorded audio tapes of the Nazi nuclear scientists that were captured and then detained at Farm Hall in England. It was a detention camp, really a manor, an English manor in England. The problem with relying on those audio tapes was that the Nazis knew they were being recorded, and they came up with a rehearsed excuse for their research called De Lizard, meaning that translates as the version. Um, and uh, so, so they knew they were being recorded. They weren't being honest in their discussions, and not even all the Nazi scientists were even there. Um, and these were not even complete transcripts, um, but summaries, and not all of them survived. So relying on those statements to come to any sort of conclusion is just crazy. The, the second um, thread of evidence uh, that we rely on in concluding that, that the Americans relied on, including Germany made no real progress, was this group called ALSOS, A-L-S-O-S. This was a group, uh, a special set of scientists that followed Allied troops in the final stages of the war 
as they as we reclaimed German-held territory uh, to determine just how close they came. That was their job. Um, they they came up through Italy and then up through France, um, and they tried to investigate all the nuclear research science, which sounds like a great idea. But the leader of the effort complained that there were more sites and more information than any team could analyze. Wow. And they found that many of the sites they tried to analyze had already been destroyed or had been evacuated by the Germans, or uh, their documents um, or whole installations were pilfered by our side. You know, we'd get some young soldiers in there who'd get there before the Alsos team. They'd see some nice equipment. They'd beat it up or try to destroy it or steal what looked shiny and, and fancy <laughs> and interesting. Um, and, and Alsos never looked at anything other than the territory that the U.S. government would control. Um, yet, they concluded that they concluded definitively that Germany made no real progress. But they never, and they made that conclusion even before they got into Germany. So, um, the idea that they didn't make um, progress, we undermine that completely. And then we do present some evidence about a calmer think tank um, which sounds as ominous as I think it really was, which existed in Czechoslovakia, in Prague. Um, and I don't know how much time we have left, but um, I, I can give you, uh, you know, a, a two-minute story on Stechevikes, which is in Prague, JV. Um, yeah, let's do, let's do the two-minute story, and then we're going to have to get close to wrapping things up. Sure. So th- this is what I would say is, is, is not proof that they were, were doing nuclear research, but proof that they were doing something unbelievably sophisticated and important. Um, and it's called the Stechevice Raid. Um, <laughs> um, after the war's over, you have to imagine the war's ended, hostilities are over, we send, we the Americans, send five trucks into Russian-occupied territory, into Czechoslovakia, and these trucks go with one Nazi uh, officer in, in, in the company, um, and they go to uh, this underground cavern that's an SS-built cavern that's booby-trapped, and th- they have bomb diffusers. Uh, they open up this cavern. They extract 42 boxes of documents and take them by truck out of Czechoslovakia back to the American zone. Um, they're discovered um, uh, days later, and the documents are returned and, uh, to Czechoslovakia, but it, we're never told what those documents were. But you have to imagine this is in the backyard of Kamler. Mm-hmm. This is where his think tank was. These are documents at an underground facility that he would have built. Um, uh, the SS helps the Americans find them. And it never reported what was in the documents, but they had to be important enough that the Germans had a special built underground cavern for them, booby-trapped them in a way that they would be destroyed. Um, uh, and the Americans felt they were important enough to make this post-war incursion uh, into Czechoslovakia. Um, and after the Iron Curtain fell, we had another uh, jet propulsion laboratory search of that area, which is fascinating. So um, not absolute proof that yeah. the Nazis were on the cusp of, 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 of creating a bomb, but uh, those are strong indicators. I have four more questions. I'm hoping we're going to be able to get them all in. And this one I have to ask because frequently on this this show we talk about metaphysical things. Um, there's reports that the Nazis were trying to find some occult connections and some some more metaphysical um, studies. Did Kamler have anything to do with that? Did you discover any of that in your research on him? You know, we really didn't. Um, and and I have to say, I didn't. I would didn't go looking for that. But I will say that he was in charge of, quote-unquote, all of Germany's secret weapons at the end of the war. Everything that was exotic or cutting-edge, he was in charge of it. Uh, so if somebody wants to go looking for it, I'd start by looking at Kamler's portfolio. This is an amazing story. What brought it onto your radar? I mean, again, this is, this is the most uh, dangerous man we've never heard of. I agree. I've, so I mentioned my two co-authors and, and, and co-researchers. One of them is Keith Chester. I've known him since I was in college. He came to me a dozen years ago uh, because he heard of this Nazi general. He was doing online research, trying to find out more about him. He came across our other researcher and co-author, Dr. Colm Lowry, who's in Northern Ireland, 
um, and they realized they were both researching the same general, Keith came to me as a lawyer and said, can you write an agreement so the two of us can share our research with each other without stabbing each other in the back? And so I agreed to do that. And then Keith started telling me, he fed me bits and pieces of this story about this all-powerful, all-evil Nazi general nobody's ever heard of. I was unbelievably skeptical, J.B., I have to tell you. I thought, there's just no way uh, that a story this big and this fascinating hasn't been written about yet. Um, uh, but I went from from skeptic to principal author as they kept, kept giving me more and more of this information, <laughs> and I started doing research of my own. Now, you, in part of your research, you were uh, able to talk with uh, Kemmler's son, is that right? Yes, that was that was a chilling experience. Yeah, I, I bet. Was, I was in Germany. His son is in, is in northern Germany. Um, I had been in touch with him by email. I'd asked to meet with him, and, and he never agreed to meet with me, and I just decided I'm just going to go to this guy's house and knock on the door. And uh, you know, he was by this time uh, an older man himself, and I met with him in his darkened parlor. He sat in what really was his deathbed. Um, he, he sat in a hospital bed in his darkened parlor, and we talked about his father and his legacy and the kind of man his father was and what sort of childhood he had growing up. And interestingly, his mother, so this is Hans Kammler's wife, lived with this son until 1996. She didn't pass away until 1996. Wow. that 50, uh, 50, 51 years after her husband's suicide. Um, and she never remarried. She never remarried. And the son was clearly asking me for information about their father. Although the family had him adjudicated dead, they never believed he was, he, he was dead. Well, that's what I was and going to ask. I mean, if, if you were, if you, if you, fake your own death in any fashion, it seems as though the the temptation to contact your family would be overwhelming. At some point, you'd want to reach out to them. And uh, from what you know, they, they, they never heard from him. Uh, that, that's right. So uh, let me say that at the end of the war, when Kamler supposedly faked his death, the son that I spoke to was only five years old. He was just a child. Yeah. So there's no way he's going to be told that his father's death was faked. Uh, you just couldn't trust a child with information like that. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the mother didn't know and if the mother had some sort of intermittent contact. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things we did come across was were plans for a Fourth Reich and uh, proof that, you know, by 1943, for example, Germany had shipped out of Germany more gold than it possessed before the war. And uh, this fabulous meeting that happened among German uh, industrialists and German government leaders about offshoring technology and gold and assets uh, in, in, in anticipation of the Fourth Reich. So it's very possible, in my mind, uh, that Kamler was part of that network in South America and had opportunities to contact his wife. It's not surprising to me that you, you, know, you couldn't tell a son at 5, so you wouldn't tell him at 10, and then really couldn't tell him at 15, and by the time he's 20 or 25 years old, he's a communist. He's, a, he's, a, uh, he's an anti-fascist. He's a communist, um, Hans Kamler's son was. Um, so at that point, you really can't tell him either. So, well, um, we're basically out of time here, but I've got to ask you about another uh, prominent Nazi. This one, I think most people have heard of, but uh, the story of Adolf Hitler's demise has been called into great question, and um, it seems to be the evidence now completely refutes the uh, official account of what happened in the bunker at the end of the war. What are your thoughts on the the um, the uh, disposition of Adolf Hitler after the war? So. I haven't studied that in any in any scholarly sense. I, I will say this: that you know, I thought it impossible that somebody like Hans Kammler, at his rank, could have faked his own suicide. Right. And we, and we prove that he not only faked his own suicide, he did it in a deal with the United States. Um, and I would layer on top of that when it comes to Hitler, the things that happened in the in what became the Russian zone of occupation. Um, Iron Curtain is, is just a great uh, metaphor for what rose up there after the war. We just don't have a lot of uh, clarity about what happened in what became the Russian zone of occupation, and it was the Russians that took over Berlin and, uh, you know, resolved things, quote-unquote, at, at the bunker. And, of course, uh, what uh, information we have at this point is sketchy at best, and it seems as though the evidence they use to identify the corpse 
in the uh, in the uh, courtyard of the bunker seems to be very very unreliable. So that's I guess that's a mystery we may never have an answer to. I would say that given what I what we found in the hidden Nazi, I'd say almost anything is possible, JV. Really, this book sounds fascinating, Dean. Where can people buy it? I know you mentioned it before, but let people know again where they can get a hold of this book. Now's a great time to be reading a good book. It is, and it's a good introduction to World War II and the Holocaust for people who who, who don't know about it, because we we paint some general uh, broad strokes in the beginning. Uh, at Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, any bookstore, if you can actually get into a bookstore, but it's everywhere you can buy books. You can find this. And, and I, as I said at the outset, it's been really well received. Yeah, and I love your perspective on this, and I love the fact that you have enough passion to pursue it. Uh, so I have to ask, any other projects on the horizon? Well, so a lot of people have said this book ought to be turned into a Netflix eight-part series or a uh, mm. or a major motion picture. So we've gotten lots of interest from documentary filmmakers, but not yet from 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 the Hollywood types. So my next project is getting this turned into that. Um, and then I'll have a next, next project, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, we hope you'll let us know what it is, and you'll come back and talk about that project when it happens. And best of luck with the book. This is this is a fascinating story, and I'm glad uh, you were brave enough and uh, um, dedicated enough to tell it. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun being on with you, J.V. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.